Nehemiah chapter 8. We read the whole of Nehemiah 8 with the last part of the previous verse, beginning therefore at, Jeremiah, at Nehemiah 7, verse 73. The last part of Nehemiah 7, verse 73. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street or plaza or open space that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, and Shema, and Aniah, and Urijah, and Hilkiah, and Maasiah, on his right hand. And on his left hand, Padiah, and Mishael, and Malchiah, and Hashem, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, and, or even the Levites, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tirshatha, or governor of Judah, appointed by the Medo-Persian emperor, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy 
unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions, and to make great mirth, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law, and they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths or temporary shelters in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount, known as the Mount of Olives, as you'll see from the next part, Go forth unto the mount, and fetch olive branches, and pine branches, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went forth, and brought them, and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, the temple, and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. Amen. This morning's text, beloved, is Nehemiah 8 verses 1 through 12. This passage contains surprising elements and even several unique features just found here in this chapter of God's Word. Now, you could preach whole sermons on individual verses in this portion. If you look at verse 8, for instance, which refers to the reading of God's law distinctly, the giving the sense of that Scripture so that the people understood the reading. That's a great text for what expository Reformed preaching is. Verse 10's last phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That would also be a lovely text. But in this sermon, because it was part of a series I preached in our own church in Northern Ireland of the whole book, we're dealing with the unit, 
verses 1 through 12 of Nehemiah 8, considering under the theme, the Feast of Trumpets, because that's what these verses are about, the Feast of Trumpets, by the water gate, the place that they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. Let's look then at the Feast of Trumpets by the water gate. First, the holy day, and we'll explain the idea of this day of the Feast of Trumpets. Then the wonderful scene by the water gate. And then the godly people, and this is an amazing passage, the godly people who kept that holy day in that place, the water gate, with this wonderful scene of a worshiping people of God. Now, as you may have noticed from the reading of our text earlier, the events took place here on one particular day, namely the first day of the seventh month. And we don't mean the first of July. This is the Jewish calendar, so it's not starting with our first of January. We're dealing with the first day of the seventh month, 445 years B.C., because the scholars can calculate the particular day and the particular year, as well as the particular place where these events took place. Verse 2 tells us that these things took place, and everybody came together, upon the first day of the seventh month. And in verses 9, 10, and 11, the day is mentioned again. The day as being holy unto the Lord. So four times in 12 verses, it nails it down. A particular day, namely the first day of the seventh month. And these statements are meant to be understood in the light of the teaching of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, that this was a special feast day. Mentioned in Leviticus 23 and the start of Numbers 29, for instance, it was the feast of trumpets. And everyone who was a Jew and versed in the Pentateuch would have realized, ah, this was a marked, a notable day in our calendar. And the significance of the feast can be underscored in several ways. The first day of the seventh month obviously was one of the new moons, because the Jewish calendar wasn't solar like ours, it was lunar. And each month would start with a new moon. So it's the first day of the new month. That's, that's important. The Jews would also have recognized that this marked the beginning of the month with the most religious feasts. The seventh month was especially the feast month, the holy month. You have the feast of tabernacles itself on the very first day of the seventh month. Then you have on the tenth day of the seventh month, the day of atonement treated in Leviticus 16, where one goat would be sacrificed and another goat would be sent off into the wilderness 
the first goat speaking about Christ's atonement on the cross, and then the second one conveying the truth of the forgiveness of sins which flows from that atonement. So there's the Feast of Trumpets, day one, the Day of Atonement, day 10, and then there's the Feast of Tabernacles. We read about that in the last half dozen verses. It runs, that feast, from day 15 to day 22 of the seventh month. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three great pilgrimage feasts when all adult males were required to go up to the holy place, the temple of Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles was the last of the three great pilgrimage feasts. And from many perspectives, the Feast of Tabernacles was the greatest of the three pilgrimage feasts. So this day of the blowing of the trumpets marked the beginning of a new month. That made it special. Marked the beginning of the greatest month in the year, the seventh month. And strangely to us, the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month, actually marked the beginning of the civil or agricultural year. The Jewish year could be classified in a twofold way. The first month, Abib, marked the beginning of what we might call the religious calendar, because on the 14th day of the first month, Passover. That was the new year beginning, religiously. But the seventh month was the beginning of the civil or agricultural year. When you think of the year in terms of the farming seasons. So this was, in short, a very auspicious day. And the particular Feast of Trumpets mentioned at the start of Nehemiah 8 was important for two additional historical reasons. And if you turn with me to Ezra chapter 3, verse 6, you'll see the first of these two additional historical reasons. Ezra 3, verse 6 says, From the first day of the seventh month, the day of trumpets, began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. In other words, you'll recall Nehemiah's sorry, Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed Jerusalem and its temple hundred plus years before. They couldn't worship God the way they had done. Zerubbabel brings a group of about 50,000 back, and they have to start rebuilding the whole thing from scratch. And on the first day of the seventh month, after, say, a hundred or so years without any sacrifices, now, now they can offer sacrifices which picture the death of Jesus Christ. And every godly Jew knew that was someday. So at every subsequent Feast of Tabernacles would have been and was enriched by that remembrance. God in His justice took us away from our land, destroyed our temple. We couldn't offer sacrifices, but on the first day of the seventh month, we had our altar again. We were able to offer up the Old Testament picture of the atonement for our sins. 
And then there's a more recent historical event. This Feast of Tabernacles in our text was the first feast or religious festival in Judah since the completion of the perimeter defensive wall around that city. Because according to Nehemiah 6 verse 15, after 52 days of hard, intense labor, Jerusalem's walls were finished, the 25th day of the sixth month. And these were short months. These were lunar months. And then the people were looking for some occasion for the outflowing of worship of God. The next religious feast, when they could get together to celebrate God's praises, was the Feast of Tabernacles four days later, the Feast of Trumpets, rather, on the first day of the seventh month. So what was this Feast of the blowing of trumpets all about. And this is harder. This gets into some of the worship in the religious calendar of the Old Testament. Well, all of the feasts involved sacrifices, bloody sacrifices. There were the daily offerings of every day in the year. Then there were special additional monthly offerings. And then on the start of this month, the seventh month, you added to the total of the previous ones, you sacrificed another bullock, another ram, seven lambs, and the people on that day were especially drawn to the fact of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for our salvation on the cross. Feasts meant the cross. And these religious feasts also in the Old Testament were special holy days that were consecrated to the Lord. No servile work. Everybody has to rest. You rest in the truth that the God of all grace delivers us from sin and misery through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the coming Savior. And the application to us in the New Testament age is simply that resting by faith alone and not looking to our own efforts or works as the basis of satisfaction or peace with God, resting by faith alone in Jesus Christ crucified, that's the way to start any month as well as any day. That was especially their way to begin the key month for festivals. And it was, in a sense, their New Year's Day, the start of the year, the civil agricultural year. It was like a New Year's Day service. We're going to go into the new year with the Lord, and we're going to blow the trumpets. Which, of course, brings up the whole issue of these trumpets. What's the idea of the blowing of trumpets? What sort of trumpets? Numbers 10 refers to silver trumpets. In other places, the trumpets that were, were blown were actually animal horns. So did they blow silver trumpets or animal horns or both? We're not told. So apparently... The idea isn't what produces the sound, 
how you get your toot. The idea is the sound itself and what it signifies. We're not told either how loud you've got to blow your trumpet, how many toots, how long you toot. But it's just simply the fact that the trumpet was blown on that day, presumably fairly often, presumably at certain particular times throughout the day. That doesn't really take us any further forward, but it explains the sorts of things we need to think about before we narrow our focus. Leviticus 23, verse 34, speaks of the blowing of the trumpets as a memorial. And a memorial, of course, is something which helps you remember. Think of the M-E-M that's in those two words. A memorial helps you remember. So you blow the trumpets, and everyone's to get the idea, ah, this is to help as a memory aid. I'm to remember the Lord my God, His grace that comes to me, and His mighty redemptive acts recorded in His Word. The trumpet blows, and everyone's to say, Ah, I worship the God of all creation. He's the one who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, I'd gotten so busy with my work in the last week, I forgot about devotions. I wasn't really thinking about spiritual things. And then I hear this toot. And I'm programmed, as it were, by my upbringing and by the Word of God to associate that on this day with a call from God as if He blows the trumpet, Son, daughter, remember my works. Ah, yes. Because a trumpet makes you sit up and pay attention and start thinking. Remember the ten plagues, what I did out of love for you to them, the Egyptians. Remember that I provided water when your forefathers thought they were going to die of thirst at Meribah in Exodus 17. Remember the mighty revelation of my glory on Mount Sinai. I could have picked all sorts of events in Israel's earlier history, but I picked these ones for reasons that will become apparent later. And remember, because the feast has been enriched by two historical events after the institution of this feast, remember, too, that the altar was rebuilt and the first sacrifices were offered in Jerusalem after a few generations on the Feast of Tabernacles, the first day of the seventh month, as Ezra 3 verse 6 says. And remember something really, really recent, what happened three or four days before when this wall, which had been rubble for several generations, and you were a total laughingstock in the ancient Near East because you were a city that didn't even have a wall around it. And now God has taken away your shame. The wall is up. Remember, remember that too. So the blowing of trumpets, that loud tooting sound, 
was a call to remember because the people of God, you and I, are very prone to forget. We forget all sorts of things, especially when we're in trouble, especially when things aren't going well for us. The second main point with the blowing of trumpets on that great festival was to call people to assemble for worship. Bring your thanksgiving to the Lord, praise Him, and meditate on the Word, and offer up prayers to Him. Let's come together for praise. And here we turn to Psalm 81, the psalm we sang a short while ago. Psalm 81, verse 3, and this may be helpful at least for some of you to look up. I think it'll help get the point across. Psalm 81, verse 3 says, Blow up the trumpet in the new moon. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon. And this especially fits with the day of the blowing of trumpets. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon, in the time appointed, on our solemn feast day. And here's one of the 150 psalms, Psalm 81, probably not one of the better known ones. It's especially a psalm for the feast of the blowing of trumpets, Nehemiah 8. And then, remember that this is a day of memorial, the feast of the blowing of trumpets. What does verse 4 say? For this was a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. Remember that God appointed this feast in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29? Verse 5, This he ordained in Joseph for a testimony when he went out through the land of Egypt where I heard a language that I understood not. Remember your redemption from Egypt. Verse 6, I removed the shoulder from the burden. His hands were delivered from the pots. And then we move to another scene. Remember this, Exodus 17. Thou callest in trouble, and I delivered thee when you thought you were going to die of first, Israel. I answered thee, in the secret place of thunder, I proved thee at the waters of Meribah. Now verse 9. There shall no strange God be in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. Where does that come from? That's a summary of the first commandment, which we read earlier in this service which points us to all of the Ten Commandments. We're blowing the trumpets here. Remember the redemptive acts. Remember the Decalogue. Verse 10, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. What's that? The prologue for the Decalogue, which we also read earlier. Now open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. And if you look back at Psalm 81, how it begins, we have the second aspect of this feast of the blowing of trumpets. It's a memorial, yes, but you blow the trumpets too to call an assembly for worship. Psalm 81, verse 1, Sing aloud unto God our strength. Make a joyful noise unto the God of Jacob. Take a psalm 
and bring hither the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the psaltery. Huh. You know, I never knew what Psalm 81 was all about. And mind you, I hadn't done much with Nehemiah 8 either. And you say, this is helpful. I'm not wrestling with some parts of God's Word. And God's Word puts strength in us. And Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 12, leads us to understand that here we have, of all places, the Bible's longest passage on a particular celebration of the Feast of Trumpets. More details here than in Leviticus 23 or Numbers 29. This great feast day, this holy day. Now with that understood, let's look at the wonderful scene painted for us in these 12 verses. We have, first of all, the location. Nehemiah is the book in all the Bible that deals not only with the walls around Jerusalem, but the gates on the walls. And here, we're talking about the water gate. The water gate was on the east side of Jerusalem, and the people of God are assembled inside the water gate and near to the water gate. Verse 1 says, all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street open space plaza that was before the water gate. One wonders why they didn't assemble in the temple courtyard. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that women were there. And in the Old Testament, there wasn't equality. And the fact, too, that lots of children were there, too. And the fact that there were a lot of people. Maybe they couldn't even fit in, all of them. Evidently, this open space by the water gate, it was a big enough area to hold all of the people who came up for several hours. And in that, it was the water gate. You had refreshments nearby. The Gaihon Spring came in by the water gate so that no one suffered from dehydration. And on this plaza, there was a platform. We're told that it was made out of wood. You may recall that after the completion of Solomon's temple, he had a bronze or platform created. And he offered a great prayer from that platform. Here we're dealing with a wooden platform. The purpose of the platform, like at the front of this auditorium or sanctuary, was to raise the speaker above the crowd so that he could be easier seen and therefore probably too easier heard. I recall hearing a man explain once the sin of the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2 and 3. And his claim was that the sin of the Nicolaitans was that of having the speaker 
on an elevated speaking platform. That was the sin of the Nicolaitans, he maintained. And that therefore all churches ought to take the form of an amphitheater with the minister speaking at the bottom. Otherwise, you fall into the sin of the Nicolaitans. Well, here, Nehemiah 8 debunks that crazy theory. Nehemiah 8 verse 4 says, Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit or platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And then verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. So whatever the sin of the Nicolaitans was, it wasn't having the speaker on a raised platform. Otherwise, Ezra, that great scribe in the law of God, would have fallen into the sin of the Nicolaitans. So you've got this platform in the plaza, and there's a key person standing on the platform in the plaza, and it is, think now, it's Nehemiah chapter 8, it is Ezra, the priest, the scribe. It's not Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a governor. It's not his job to expound and preach the law of God. And Ezra is a unique figure even in the book that is named after him, because Ezra is only mentioned for the first time in Ezra chapter 7, because he is not at all involved or even mentioned in the events in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. That's unusual in the Bible. A book named after a particular person, and he's only mentioned in chapter 7. And he's only mentioned in 7, 8, 9, and 10. Four of the 10 chapters of the book that is named after him and probably penned after him. And the other strange thing about Ezra is that he becomes the main character in Nehemiah chapter 8. So he's not even in the first six chapters of the book that's named after him. And then he pops up and becomes the main chapter in another book that isn't named after him. And he also crops up in Nehemiah 12, by the way. But here, in our text, Ezra is the principal reader of the Word of God, the principal preacher of sacred Scripture. And then we turn to the people the people who flanked the key person, Ezra, on the platform in the plaza before the water gate. Because Ezra was joined on that platform by six leading men on his right hand and seven leading men on his left hand. So there were 13 of them in total flanking this great priest, scribe, and preacher. And what was the idea of this? It was to show support and consent from these 13 who were high-ranking officials in Israel to show support and consent with the Word of God and its faithful preaching on that auspicious day. Now, in our circles, we don't do that. We don't call for the elders and the deacons to sit on either 
side of the minister. But we do have a way of conveying the fact that the office bearers who are leaders in the church support and consent the preaching, in that the elders in our circles shake hands. Same idea is conveyed. That was how they did it then. We do it a slightly different way now. Now, besides Ezra, we read in verse 7 of another 13 Levites who mingled amidst the people and helped explain anything that needed further clarification. So there are two groups of 13. There's 13 with Ezra on the platform showing support. And then there are 13 mingled amongst the crowd helping to explain and clarify things from the scriptures that have been read and, and preached. And all of this, beloved, brings us to our third point, which is also the most applicatory element of the sermon for us, the godly people. Because Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 12, is a picture of the people of God in one of their high points, where things are going well, and they're spiritually excited and vibrant. The godliness of the people on that day was seen even before the big meeting on the Feast of Trumpets. Note first that practically all the Jews in the land came up to Jerusalem. Men and women and children, quote, all that could hear with understanding, verse 2. And remember, this wasn't one of the three great pilgrimage feasts. Not even, the men weren't even required to be there. Never mind the women. Never mind ten-year-olds. But they all came up. Gladly, volunteering, off their own bat, so to speak. And then, notice the way they came up. They came up to the feast, united in the right spirit. And that's key for public worship, too. Verse 1 says, All the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. They were like the 120 in the upper room in Acts 2, the birthday of the New Testament church, where they were all with one accord in one place. And that, of course, is what we need in this congregation and in our church in Northern Ireland and every congregation, and that's what you need every week. But it's not very easy to obtain and then third, and I say this as a minister especially, it gets even better because all the people unitedly went to Israel's greatest priest, preacher, and scribe to ask him to minister the Word of God to them. This delegation, as it were, of the whole crowd, we all want you, pastor, to preach the Word to us. And we're all going to come up, even though we don't have to. Verse 1, 
says, All the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Please, Ezra, preach to us. And Ezra, of course, did as he was requested. And what minister of the Scriptures wouldn't? Here were a people, to use the language of 1 Peter, who were earnestly desiring the sincere or pure milk of the Word in order to grow spiritually. Oh, that this heart were in the people of God always. And the godliness of this people is seen not only in their attitude and approach before the worship service, but it's seen in their behavior during the public meeting near the water gate in verses 3 through 8. And first of all, we should note that this service lasted for six hours. Did the children hear that? A worship service for six hours. Verse 3, Ezra read in God's law before the street that was before the water gate from the morning unto midday. And the morning means 6 a.m., and midday is noon. Six hours. How would you fare, and I asked the same question of my own congregation, how would you fare with a six-hour worship service? And I ask it of myself, how would I fare with a six-hour worship service? You need to be careful you don't lose your voice for one thing. Six whole hours, during which, because it gets better, the people were wrapped and they listened carefully. And it wasn't just the men, it was the women, and it was the children for apparently the whole six hours. Verse 3 says, Ezra read the, the word before the men, women, and everybody that could understand, which included children, but not very small children, and the ears of all the people were unto the book of the law. Their ears were unto the book of the law. All of them for six hours. And we notice, too, the reverence shown by the men, women, and children in verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all people on this platform, for he was above all the people physically. And when he opened it, it's a scroll now, he's rolling it out, maybe he's got something to keep it at the right place, a little bit of wood or something fairly heavy. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. This is the Word of God. The people arose. Verse 6 says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And how did the people respond? All the people answered, Amen and Amen. And then they lifted up their hands in adoration and as a sign of spiritual aspiration to ascend to God in praise. And... They bowed their heads, and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They're lying 
prostrate. And this is really keeping the Old Testament feast of trumpets. The word is read and preached to the people. The people worship. They worship spiritually. And the blowing of the trumpets is all about this. The tooting signifies people of God remember His gracious works, and they're doing it. People of God come to worship and hear the Scriptures proclaimed and bring Him gratitude and praise. And Nehemiah 8 is an especially good passage to prove the truth that the reading and preaching of the Word and the spiritual worship that that creates in God's people was key and central even in the Old Testament. Yeah, there was instruments that were blown like trumpets, and you can blow a trumpet and not even be a believer. You know, you just make a sound with a, with a bit of metal or, or a ram's horn. But it was more than that. It was the Word in people's hearts. And then, beloved, to round it all off, the godliness of the people is seen not only before the meeting and during this public meeting on the Feast of Trumpets, but even afterwards, after the six hours, which meeting broke up at noon in verses 9 through 12, the people responded by mourning and weeping. God's law, the Pentateuch, had showed them their sins against Him. They shed tears of repentance. Look at my weak faith. Unlike Father Abraham, I struggle to believe. I've transgressed this law of God. I feel guilty and unclean before the Holy One of Israel. And it was all the people, men, women, and children. And their repentance was deepened. Because we need to grow in faith, and it's concomitant repentance too. And then notice verse 9. Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, or civil governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Don't mourn, don't weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the Lord. And you say, this is rather strange. These leaders saying the people don't weep, even don't weep over your sins. Why, why are they doing this? Well, they're doing this related to the constraints of the Jewish religious calendar. They were saying, amongst other things, and first of all, this is the wrong day for it. The first day of the month, the blowing of the trumpets, that's not the day for mourning over sins as such. That's the tenth day of the seventh month. That's the day of atonement, a day of fasting and ripping your garments and lamenting before God. The feasts in Israel, as Deuteronomy 16 says, were generally feasts which called for joy in the Lord. So what you're doing is right, and we're not going to say don't repent over your sins, but the idea of this feast is more joy 
um, sorrow. And the people took some convincing. Nehemiah says to them again, verse 10, Look, go your way, eat the fat, good quality food. Drink the sweet, the best quality wine you have. Send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord. Neither be ye sorry, that's not the idea of this feast, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And apparently that didn't cause the people to stop their weeping. So the Levites chime in, verse 11. The Levites stilled all the people saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. Stop your mourning. And this is a striking passage of Scripture. And it makes a very interesting and very clearly biblical point regarding Christian spirituality. Because there is a certain type of piety where it's all confession of sin, where it's all black, where the Christian faith is about being morose and dour and gloomy. And the more morose, dour and gloomy you are, the better Christian you are. I haven't said that, beloved. Probably in our day, we could do with a bit more repentance we're probably a little bit more on the lighter side. But this passage is saying, you don't go all black. Such a sorrow, to use a Pauline phrase, is sorrowing over much. Because a true sorrow leads us to the cross and the forgiveness of sins. And this is precisely what the threefold knowledge of the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us. Knowing my sins and misery leads me to Christ and my salvation in Him, which leads to gratitude that virtuous cycle. Here's Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And you may recall chapter 2, verse 2, when he was before the Medo-Persian emperor and he looked sad, the king remarked upon it and said, I've never seen you sad before. There must be sorrow in your heart because Nehemiah had the joy of the Lord as his strength, and he didn't go around all morose and gloomy. Because there is a sorrow, an overmuch sorrow, where everything's pretty much gloomy and black, which serves to discourage. It discourages the person who has it in their heart and discourages people around them. A sorrow which takes away our energy, which saps our strength, which makes us unable to do our day-to-day -day activities, never mind labor in the kingdom of heaven. And here is Scripture, clear Scripture, saying, joy, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy makes Christians strong because the joy of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. It's my joy, Jesus says, which I give unto you. And then if the joy of the Lord is our strength, it makes you strong to work and serve the Lord. And the people's response to this repeated exhortation is that they came around and they rejoiced. They, they feasted together and had good fellowship. They shared their food with those who were needy. Verse 12, all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make mirth or rejoice. And then it gets even better. It tells us the reason why they were so happy and glad. And it wasn't, hey, 
it's the first day of the seventh month. That's a day off work, so we get a holiday or a vacation. Although that can be a nice thing. It wasn't merely, wow, you should have seen the gathering we had at church. We had a big day at church. I mean, men were there, the women were there, even the young people were there, although such things do harden us. It wasn't even, and afterwards we had a really good big meal and everybody just enjoyed being together. Though a thing like that definitely helps us. Verse 12 says, They made great rejoicing, quote, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. I went to church and I understood the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was nice that a good lot of people were there and we had a really good dinner afterwards, a nice time of fellowship. But just understanding the Word of God and having it deep in my heart, that made me so happy. That's what this passage is teaching. And that's a good plug for Bible studies in the church too. One last point. It's worth pointing out here that these people in Nehemiah 8 are the same people of God who, in Nehemiah 3 through 6, had worked together in spite of awful opposition from within and without. They worked together to build Jerusalem's walls in only 52 days, which was amazing. And people said you could never do it. You could never even rebuild the thing, never mind rebuild it so quickly. And now just a few days after completing that massive congregational project, the same people who worked together hard are worshiping together. The people of Nehemiah 3, all in their little bands, you take that part of the wall, we'll do the next bit, I'll do the gate, all in their different work teams are the same people rejoicing in Nehemiah 8. And this is all the fruit of Jesus Christ's cross. It grants people the forgiveness of sins and sanctification so that they, that is to say we, produce good works which enables the people in the church to work together and to worship together enthusiastically and joyfully like us, beloved. And next Lord's Day morning, we're going to have the Lord's Supper together, eating and drinking Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word, far richer than we've ever understood. Bless us, Lord God, with the 66 books of Scripture and the light that streams into our naturally dark souls from heaven. And create in us, Father, more of the grace and church activity of the passage we look together at this morning. Forgive afresh our sins, because we're always sinning and coming short. And do that, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.